0: All right, so, question. When somebody accuses you of something, what usually happens? Like, how, how do you usually respond? Maybe, it depends. Is that, maybe, not. I don't know. That's, is that, did you say it depends, or did I just hear that? Um, just say, do you, do you not oh, okay, yeah. So if you, they accuse you, and you're not guilty, you get defensive. And if you are guilty, you probably still get defensive, right? I mean get really tense, get really nervous, maybe stressed out, apologize for what, what's happened. Yeah, you know, like being accused of something is a really, really unpleasant situation. Or maybe, maybe you don't apologize. I, maybe you take the other way and then maybe you like throw an accusation back. You know, like somebody accuses you or something. You're like, well, but you, you know, I mean, it's a really difficult experience. Now, hopefully... Hopefully, you don't get accused too often, you know, by someone of something. But far more often than we probably want to admit, we live like we're being accused. You know, like how many times do you, you know, feel like, okay, I think this person might be upset with me because of this thing. Or this person doesn't seem happy with me because of this. I think this person thinks that I did this thing wrong. You know, like how often do we live like we're accused, even if people didn't necessarily say it. But then even to add to that, I don't know about you, but I find that for me, the, 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 the greatest place of accusation that I deal with isn't actually from what people say or do, but it's this thing that happens in my head. And this is kind of a, and I don't know, I, I'm, I, this is one of those, it's, I feel a little bit vulnerable sharing this, but it's, I, I have a feeling that I'm not the only one who experiences it, so I'm gonna share it, is I find that regularly, I like come up with defenses in my head for things that I do like just in case I need to explain myself. Like I don't know if anybody else does this, like we're like, you know, you do something, and it's not even anything you did wrong, but for whatever reason, it's like you think through, like okay, if somebody wonders why I did this, I need to come up with an answer. And, And I realize it's really stupid because the vast majority of the time, nobody says a thing, or nobody is even curious. They're probably not even thinking about me, but for whatever reason, at some point in my life, I was conditioned to be ready to defend myself because someone might make an accusation. Or maybe it's this sense for some reason that I need to defend myself to myself. I don't know, I don't wanna go too deep down the rabbit hole right now, but I, I just have these things that go on in my head and, and my guess is I'm not the only one. And if we have these things where we are dealing with accusations in our head regularly, and remember how we said it, what it's like to be accused? how uncomfortable it is and stressful it is and defensive it is? If that's what it's like to be accused, and if we live often like we're defending ourselves from accusation, then man, how much of our lives do we spend being stressed out and defensive and maybe angry, hostile, apologizing when we don't need to, doing all these different things because we are regularly living like we're being accused. how much stress and difficulty do we add to our lives, do we have in our lives because of this feeling? But, you know, we're not the only ones who've ever been accused of anything. And it doesn't just go beyond our our church building. Of course, other people have. But Jesus himself was accused. And his accusation was a big deal. When people accused him, it was false. And not only was it false, but it actually pushed him along the path to the cross, to his death. But today in our lesson, we have the opportunity to to, to take a look at how he responded to accusation, to look at what he did, and to look what he then accomplished by going through that accusation and going then to the cross. And as we look at what he did, we look at how he responded, we can find peace and confidence in the middle of our accusations, in the middle of these challenges, to say, I rest my case. The lesson we have, it is Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was a custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now the lesson we have today is significantly longer than many of the lessons that we go through on Sunday mornings. And that's going to be a, a regular thing during this, uh, this series that we're going through. And so as we go through, what we're going to go through it a little bit differently than we typically do. You know, When we have a shorter lesson, we can really like analyze each word and really pick it apart. If we were to do that with this lesson, we would be here for hours. And I don't think any of us were planning to do that today. So we're, we're not. Um, we're, what we're going to do is going to focus in on some key parts and some key themes and aspects of this lesson. As I mentioned at of the Service, this lesson is part of the, this this Weekends and Lent series where we're doing this mini-series from Mark and this Gospel of Mark is this, this book that really sets up and lays before us the question Who is Jesus? And the first part of the book is really laying out there a lot of confusion about who Jesus is but is really showing us that he is the promised Christ, the promised King There's this transition point in the middle where Jesus really lays out that he is there. He's going to go and and to die. And the second part of the book really takes us on that path towards the cross, towards Jesus carrying out his work as the king who brings hope to the world. Before we get into the lesson, it's good for us to note, in our lesson we're going to talk about Jesus being on trial and being accused. Um, But before we get to that, it's important to note that there are a couple other sections where Jesus is also on trial. Jesus is on trial in front of the Jewish leaders. There's also a point where Jesus is on trial in front of a man named Herod. Those are in other sections of the Gospels. Um, They're they're great to study, but they're just not in our verses today, so we're not really going to hit on them too much. Um, I'm sure we'll hit on those in other times and in other Lent studies. But for our lesson today, our lesson picks up shortly after what we studied last week. Last week, we looked at that event, the night that Jesus was betrayed, that event where Jesus was there on trial in front of those Jewish leaders, and Peter is outside really curious about what's going on. People recognize Peter. They say, you were with him, and Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter didn't think he would do it. Peter told Jesus, I'm with you all the way. Jesus had told him, no, you're going to deny me. And we had that comforting reminder That while Peter acted like he didn't know Jesus, Jesus knew Peter and he was loving Peter all the way to the death. And though sometimes we act like we deny Jesus with our lives, he knows us and he loves us completely. He is all in knowing us completely. Our lesson comes a bit after that, now in the wee hours of the morning. After these trials, where we get now and we see Jesus being brought by the religious leaders in front of this man named Pilate. The whole and the religious leaders, had made this decision. They were convinced Jesus needed to die, but then they brought him to Pilate because Pilate was the Roman official who had the authority to kill him. See, Pilate was a Roman official who basically had the, the task of trying to keep the Jewish people underneath Rome's thumb in that area. He needed to make sure that taxes went smoothly, that Rome could could bring the money they want, and Part of being over those people was making sure that if there was a a, a riot or there was a rebellion, that he would squash it. And so he has this task, he has this authority then to have people put to death. Because he's there, he has this authority, this, this task of really pushing down any rebellion or anything. That's why he was actually in Jerusalem at the time. Because there's the feast going on, there are Jews from all over the place gathering together in Jerusalem... And so they want him there in case something breaks out, in case the people start to unite together and try to overthrow Rome. Pilate is there to squash that and to push that down. And so they bring Jesus here before Pilate. When they bring Jesus before Pilate, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes, it is, as you say. Or more literally, in the original language, it really he just says, you said so. Yeah, you said it. And that's basically everything that Mark records a saying in front of Pilate. Besides that, Jesus says basically nothing. The chief priest accused him of many things, so again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. All Jesus said was, yeah, you said it. And then besides that, he's just silent. They're accusing him and accusing him, and he's just No word. And this amazes Pilate. The word amaze, it literally means to marvel at or to behold. Like, he's looking closely. He's intrigued by it. But the word has the sense of, like, a positive intrigue. Like, he's, like, impressed. Like, what? What is going on here? And it is interesting to consider, like, what is going on? Like, why does Jesus not say anything? You know, because when we talk about being accused, like, it's hard to just not say anything, especially when it's false, what is Jesus doing? Now, maybe Jesus doesn't say anything because he, he, he knows that it's not going to do a bit of good. He's been preaching and teaching for years. They haven't understood him there. They haven't got him there. Are they going to get him now? Or maybe he knows it's not going to do any good for getting him released, you know, so he doesn't speak up. Or maybe, you know, Jesus does realize he knows what's happening. He knows what's going on and he knows what is coming up. He knows that the plan of God, the path of God for him going forward is that he be falsely accused, falsely arrested, and unjustly killed. Jesus knows that while the world is against him and is accusing him, that the Father's plan, the plan that he and the Father came up with, is being carried out. And he's silent. You know, I agree with Pilate here. It's, It's really kind of amazing when you look at what's going on, and you see the fact that Jesus, as he's being falsely accused, on the path to death, and he basically just says, I rest my case. I've got nothing more to say. It's amazing. Now, it was the custom, though, at the feast, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Now, I got to tell you, this is a scene that for a long time I thought was really weird, okay? And the reason why I thought it was weird was like, can you imagine like having the Wisconsin State Fair each year and then having a tradition where like Governor Evers says, hey, what criminal do you want us to release? Like, wouldn't that be odd? You know, like halftime Packer game. Hey, who, what criminal do we want to release? This is, I just thought it was strange. And, And especially considering like, what type of criminals are they? I mean, you know, honestly, I'd probably be like, he did that, you could keep him. You know, like, do I even really want that criminal released? I I thought it was strange, but it's because I really kinda just glossed over a couple of words that actually indicate for us and can activate in our minds a larger story that is happening. And when that larger story is activated in our minds, then we can actually make much more sense of what's going on and and better understand the the storyline at this point. See, when I would read about Barabbas, I would see that he was someone who had committed murder. And that was the thing that stuck out to my head. Like, oh, he's a murderer. But the word that really can activate a bigger story is the word insurrectionist. He is in jail, in prison, with insurrectionists because he committed murder in an uprising. See, there's this bigger story going on that we're not going to review all of it right now today. We we don't need to take the time, and we've done a lot of reviewing it. but, But keep in mind that God made a promise to Abraham that he's going to turn him into his great nation and he's going to bring blessing to the whole world through them. So you have this Jewish people who have this promise God's going to bring blessing to the world through them and it's going to be through this king that comes through them. They had this really difficult history, though, of turning away from God and having issues with other nations. There came a point that the temple itself was actually destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. By the grace of God, they were brought back. The temple was restored. But then over the next few centuries, the people... Are experiencing a lot of unrest because they have these promises of God that is going to be blessing coming through them and through a king to them, but they just keep being under the thumb of these opposing nations. And so one of the things that happens over and over again in the centuries leading up to Jesus's life is that Jewish people would get excited about a leader, a charismatic leader, And they would rally around him, and then they would try to throw off whatever government had rule over them at the time. And sometimes this was effective, or at least a couple times. Like, for instance, uh, there is this this time where there's a Greek ruler over them, and he's, like, polluted the temple, doing terrible stuff in the temple. And then there's this Maccabean revolt where they fight back, and and, and they they clear out the temple, and they, they purify the temple, and these great things happen. That is actually what Hanukkah is all about. That event. So there it was positive. Most of the time, it was ugly because you get this rebellion and then the power over them would come down on them and destroy them. And there'd be a lot of violence and death and terrible things going on. When you get to the time of Jesus, Barabbas is with the insurrectionists because he committed murder, not just because he randomly committed murder, because it was part of one of these efforts one of these fights to throw off the Romans. And so there's a different feel. It's not just, oh, he's just whatever criminal. He's someone who was fighting the cause, someone who was trying to throw off Rome, someone who was trying to do good, and in the, in the event, then he did this thing. You, you can see now why, why the people would have been, yeah, give us one of those people, because they would have had in mind that he's one of us. He's someone who's fighting our fight. He's trying to do, he was trying to do the cause. He was trying to do it. We can make better sense of this event, but also we can make better sense of all the things that are coming here and and, and accumulating here together with Jesus as he's on trial and and eventually going to be killed. This whole insurrection concept plays in and shows up throughout Jesus' ministry. You go back to the event when Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people, and people are excited, like, oh, this is the prophet. But then we're told that Jesus withdrew from the people why because they intended to come and make him king by force what is that talking about what is that alluding to the fact that when they see jesus they see a potential leader of a rebellion against rome and they're super excited about it because man if this guy can take just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and multiply it and feed thousands what could he do against our enemy they were thinking, they were perceiving Jesus as a better version of what they've been trying to do for centuries. And that maybe he could lead an incredible rebellion against Rome. This is what the people were hoping he was. You know, so that's the thing. Is Jesus, he's, he's put alongside Barabbas, and we might go, well, this is, this is a strange setting, but actually... The people are accusing him, the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of being what the people wanted him to be. And what they themselves thought he really was going to be. We read that lesson from John about that, that event where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And then they're like, man, we've got to kill this guy. Which, again, I thought was weird. But look at what they say, look at what their reasoning is. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What they see is that Jesus, they're they're convinced that at some point he's going to try to lead a rebellion. And if he gets enough people, enough followers, then the response from Rome is going to be catastrophic. And if he gets enough followers, it's going to trigger this military response, and it is going to be destructive, and we cannot let that happen. In some ways, it actually changes the tone of so the, like, as, or at least as the field. when you look at some of the religious leaders. In some ways, their hearts were going in, in a somewhat right direction. We don't want there to be destruction. We don't want more people killed. So we got to, th- these rebellions are a problem. We need to stop this. Of course, only in some ways are they in a better light because the reality is they reject God himself, and so this is bad. But also, we should recognize that part of their motivation may have simply just been selfish, too. Because for these religious leaders, most of them were the elite in the area. They were wealthy, they were comfortable, they were respected. And for something to come in, for they, they didn't want things to be disrupted. You know, for them, life was pretty smooth. And part of the reason why, why we can get an insight that that's what's going on is, as I was rereading the Gospels this week, I, I, I noticed something really intrigued me was that when the Gospels refer to someone as being someone who is is one of the religious leaders, occasionally there would be one of them who would be interested in Jesus and want to learn more. Like, say, Nicodemus, when he goes and visits Jesus in John 3. They're typically referred to someone who is looking for the kingdom of God. Isn't that an interesting way to refer to to them? Not a believer, not not someone who trusts in Jesus. They're someone who is looking for the kingdom of God. And it makes me wonder if the reason why these people couldn't get past the idea of Jesus being an insurrectionist, is that these religious leaders were no longer looking for a Messiah. You know, maybe they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah because they weren't looking for one anymore. What they really wanted, you know, life was good for them? That's just, if we could just stop these rebellions and just get along with Rome, things would be fine. You know? There's this whole interesting story going on of seeing Jesus as simply an insurrectionist leader who would disturb the status quo. And you even see this brought up some when Jesus is arrested. When they come for Jesus, Jesus asks this great question, Am I leading a rebellion? That you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? They keep thinking he's going to be this big, rebellious, big rebellion leader, and he's just not. And even when he gets arrested, he's like, Am I leading a rebellion? Haven't been. Not going to. But it's just interesting that, that, that Jesus is presented here. He's accused of being what everybody wanted him to be. And we can kind of understand now why he's here alongside Barabbas and what's going on. When the people gathered together and, and Pilate wants to release Jesus because he realizes, man, this guy's not causing a rebellion. This guy hasn't done anything like that. But the people wanted him to be a rebellion leader. That's what they saw him as. And that's what the religious leaders saw him as, which is why they saw him as such a threat, which is why they were working against him, because they didn't want him to lead a rebellion. They didn't want him to break up the status quo. They didn't want him to get in the way of things, which is why they are so against him, which is why they they really rally up the people, and then the people go for it you can even kind of get a sense of why they would go for it. Because, I mean, you guys know what it's like to be really hopeful that something's going to turn out. You know, you really, like, hope that something's going to be better. I've had people tell me recently that, like, even though the numbers are down with COVID and stuff and there's, there's, there's things, there's vaccines coming out, they're like, I don't want to get my hopes up. Because if I do, and then things go backwards, I'm just going to be devastated. You know, having hope and then having it fall through can be devastating for some of these people, for them to be so hopeful that maybe he is the one to do what we want it to do. And now to see him with a crown of thorns and to see him up front and to see him under Roman arrest, the devastation. And then you add on top of it, you've got people back there. You know, you've got a voice of a crowd telling you to, to crucify and to crucify and to crucify and, and so on. The, the, they go along with the crowd. Maybe it's out of devastation. Maybe it's just out of peer pressure. I don't know, but... They all rally against Jesus. To crucify him for being what they wanted him to be, even though he wasn't. And to crucify him for for being someone who was maybe going to disrupt their status quo, which is really not what his ministry was about. And maybe to crucify him for being someone who they were hoping would be one thing, and he wasn't, and so he looked like a failure. It's interesting to consider all the different things that would have been going on in their minds and their hearts Partly because one of the things I love about Scripture, and this is one of the things I love about studying the Bible, is that, you know, while it might be set a couple thousand years ago, and in Rome, it might seem so different, the reality is they're people, just like us. And if you can get through some of the cultural differences to what their regular experience is, then you can see that we can understand what's going on. And the better we can understand what's going on in these lessons the better and more easily it can translate into our own lives. And we can see it. If we can understand what's going on there, we can better understand what God's Word says to us. And we can better see ourselves in this. We can see God's Word in our lives, but then we can begin to see ourselves in God's Word. The better we can connect and understand. It's one of the things that we want to do whenever we look at a lesson from God's Word is, is look at it and go, okay, Where do I see myself in this? Because the more I can see myself in it, the more I can see what it speaks to me. And when we understand some of the dynamics what was going on in people's minds, maybe we can see ourselves as being part of the crowd. I mean, have there been ways where, you know, you hear the teachings of Jesus, you see Jesus. Do you ever hope that Jesus, do you ever treat Jesus like he's just like a better version of what you've always been trying to do? You know, like, okay, I believe in Jesus and nobody says for eternity, but you still try to find your satisfaction in the same place. You still put your priorities the same way. You still try to find your worth and your significance in the same places. Where you see he says things that are different, he, he, he wants to rewrite things, but the reality is you're like, I'm not so into the new way, I'd rather just do it the old way. There's this thing that people will say that uh, I, I always want to be like, Good effort, but no. (laughs) Um, Where people will say, you know, it's really good to have God be part of your life. And I I don't say this, but I kind of just want to be like, you know, that's, no, he doesn't want to be part of your life, actually. Because he wants your whole life. He, he, He wants to give you a new life. He wants to completely rewrite everything. He wants to give you a new purpose, a new significance, where you find your hope and your joy somewhere else. It's not just, you, he's not just a part, he's not just a piece, it's the whole thing. But a lot of times, you know, we want to, you know, we just want to do things the way we naturally did, and we don't want to, we want to have them be a part instead of be new. And maybe it's because of something similar to, like, the religious leaders, you know, like, like, maybe we're, we're comfortable, we're pretty comfortable with what we have and, and, and how we live, and. And maybe like the religious leaders, you know, we could look at some of the things that Jesus says and be like, man, that seems dangerous. Like, if I really trust God with everything, and if I really seek first his kingdom, like, is it really all going to work? I mean, that seems dangerous. If I really love my enemy, I'm just going to get walked on. That seems dangerous. You know, if I really put other people first and live a life where I take a low position, a humble position, and like, that seems dangerous. That just that dis- disrupts my, my comfort zone. Like maybe, you know, do we ever do that? Do we ever look at Jesus, and we had hopes of things that he would do for us, what we wanted him to be, and when he doesn't come through the way we want him to, I feel like he's failed us. You know, like, man, I was hoping he would do this, and then he doesn't. I was hoping he would be this, and, and he isn't. And maybe we know better, then to be like, God, you failed. Like maybe, you know, we've been brought up in church. Like there's probably certain things that we that we we know we shouldn't ever say that to God. But do we show it in our act in our, our lack of thanks and our lack of joy and our lack of positivity and optimism about what He can do in our lives? Because we're like, Man, you know, it just seems like you failed again. Now we, we, we bring up all these things today, again, not to beat ourselves up, but so that we can return return to the cross. To see ourselves here in this lesson, to lay our sins before Jesus so we can have him speak into them and give us healing and hope in them. We, if we're honest, we, we do sometimes in our lives act like that crowd. We don't necessarily say crucify Jesus, but man, sometimes we don't want Jesus to do things the new way. We don't want him to disrupt our comfort. We act like he fails. Sometimes... If we're honest, if we're going to build a case against ourselves, the case would be that we are guilty of being part of that crowd. But when that case mounts against us, when we realize the way that we have been guilty, is when we need to remind ourselves of where this is all heading. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Peter, or excuse me, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This was part of the path of Jesus going to the cross to do something incredible and for us to, to, to take to heart what he was going to do let's take a moment and think about this lesson from maybe a perspective that we don't normally try to look at it from. What do you think Barabbas was thinking? Which prisoner do you want me to Pardon? or Jesus, the so-called Christ? What should I do with Jesus? Him. Nail him to a tree. What has he done wrong? They're crucifying him. Crucifying the man that took your place. I don't mean your place. I'm not saying you should be crucified. Ourselves are next to each other. The crowd is picking up. We need to go. There was a hole in the wall between the cells. I could pull a a piece out and see him. I saw everything. Barabbas, the Romans may have let you go, but they aren't going to let you live. They beat him, they cursed him, they spit on him. He never said a thing. He, he never fought back. Once we get out of town and find someone to treat your wound. Did you see what they did to him? His back. That crown, those thorns. At least it wasn't you. Why not? Why not me? I am. I don't know why not. But if we're going to leave, we need to leave now. Stop! Stop talking! Just stop! So that, that video is not, those details aren't in Scripture. That's something kind of just imagining what, what Barabbas' experience, experience would have been like. But it brings out a really good point. He took our place. That's what was going on the whole time. He knew exactly what he was doing. If you were to build a case against it just based on our life and everything, the case would be, yeah, we're, we're, we're guilty. But he went ahead and... You know, was silent, like it was promised. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted. He, he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was silent. He had no reason to be sent there, no reason to be killed, but he was. So he could be the perfect substitute for you and for me. So he could take our place. For every wrong thing we've ever done, because he's perfect, because he never did anything wrong, it could be put on him instead of on us. All the guilt, all the justice for anything wrong, all the hurt we've ever caused, all the pain that comes as a result, all the punishment that comes from it, all of it has been put on him. And he took our place. And if he took our place, if he took all of it, is there anything left for you or for me? Any conviction? Any punishment? Any justice? No, it's just like with Barabbas. Like he's released. And so are you. It's like in our lesson from 1 John, chapter 2. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Anytime that we sin, anytime that we we, we trip up, anytime that there could be a case mounting against us, anytime that we're accused, we have someone who says, hey, I was accused for them. And I'm innocent, but I died for them. I took their place. Every time. Every time, Jesus says, I took place their place. I died so they don't have to. I took their guilt so they don't have to carry it. I experienced their shame so they don't have to wear it. I died so they don't have to have their life end in death. I died so that they could live. He speaks on our defense. He speaks on our behalf. This is why you and I, when we come to accusations, we could say, I rest my case. We could take a note from Jesus. You know, anytime... The guilt comes calling. Anytime we have this thing like, look at this wrong I did, you and I, we can just be like, Jesus. That's it. We don't have to, you know, come up with these defenses. We don't have to say, oh, but I did this or did that. He was silent and went to the cross. And so now I don't have to speak up and try to defend myself. Jesus, he did it. My sins paid. He took my place. There's nothing else to say. Which I love because, you know, like I said at the beginning, so often we we live like we have accusations. And and part of that is just our sinful world. But also realize that part of it is is because we're dealing, dealing with the devil. And the devil, he accuses us all the time. When it says in this verse from 1 Peter 5.8, be controlled and self, self-controlled and alert, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, the word enemy actually describes someone who is an opponent in a lawsuit. That's actually what the term refers to. It's someone who puts accusations against you in the court of law. That's what, that's what he is. And the word devil, actually, it literally means to throw over. The, it, it's, it's like people translate it slander. But it's the idea of someone just like th- lobbying stuff at your name throwing accusations at you, throwing, this is what he does. And even here, this verse, when it talks to him like a roaring lion, it wasn't until I did the the first Peter Bible study this year when I wrote it, that it dawned on me, I always thought of the lion as just being sneaky to hunt, and that's part of what he does. But a lion doesn't roar to be sneaky. When does a lion roar? When he wants to scare you. When he wants to freeze you with fear. Because he wants to intimidate you. And this is what the devil does over and over again. Look at what you've done wrong. Look at this thing. You're never going to be good enough here. You're never going to be this. Do you think that person's unhappy with you? Do you think this person's on? Un- he just throws these accusations all the time. This is what he does. He tries to scare us so that we freeze and we die. And in the face of all that, Jesus, you know, devil, whatever. Say whatever you want, Jesus. The devil... Jesus. I don't have to defend myself to you, devil. I don't have to defend myself to these. I don't, have to def- I don't have to do it. He took my place. This doesn't mean that, of course, relationship things are immediately resolved right away. Sometimes there's consequences for accusations. Sometimes people make false accusations and things spiral in unfortunate ways. But no matter what's going on with the accusations of the world and that people are throwing at us, you and I can have peace in the midst of them. Because we can just know, well, Jesus. And if Jesus, then I'm right with God. And if Jesus took my place, then God is pleased with me, and he delights in me. Whatever people think, he's for me. Whatever people say, he treasures me. Then (laughs) Like Jeroboam said, that, that it changes everything because if I can just say Jesus, that means that no matter what's going on in my life, I don't have to carry guilt. Jesus took my place. Shame, don't have to bear, bear that. Jesus, he took my place. Value in my life, if, if Jesus took my place and I'm right with God, then, then the, the author of all creation treasures me and he says that you're worth it and you're good and I, I, and I got you. Jesus. If Jesus took my place, then, then my life has ultimate meaning and significance because I'm connected to God and it's part of his big plan. Jesus, it changes everything. If Jesus took my place and I'm right with God and, and, and God now lives in me, then when it comes to having power to live differently, when it comes to having power to embrace a different life, then Jesus, I don't have to come up with an explanation or a reason, just Jesus, you know? When it comes to having hope for tomorrow, if Jesus took my place and I'm right with God, then I can know that, that, that even, even when everything looks like it's fallen apart, I mean, the world was all surrounding Jesus and accusing him, but yet God's plan was being fulfilled. In my life, God's plan is being carried out. Jesus. And when I'm looking for hope even beyond tomorrow, hope forever, I can have full confidence because he took my place, Jesus. I don't have to live always trying to defend myself or whatever. I'm right with God, treasured, love. I'm his child. I have purpose. I have significance. I have hope for the future. All of it. And I don't have to say a thing. I rest my